I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John. We're going to wind down our series of Christ is All. What we've been doing, if you're new to, to Travis online or, or first-time guest, we've been in a four-week series uh, walking through what scholars would just contend are the four major Christological passages, and that's just a really smart way of saying, like, these are passages that help us understand who Jesus is um, and, and what he's currently doing. Um, and, and help us put a framework. And the idea behind this series was that we had just come out of this political season. Uh, the, the country's a mess, culture's a mess. We're, we're fighting, we're infighting within the church, within Christianity. And, and there are just times where we need like hard resets, like push the hard reset, pause, destroy all the evidence, and let's just for a moment, like just put our eyes on, on Jesus. And the idea is, is that the larger that vision and understanding of who he is, the more it grows. Then the more it's gonna shape how we walk and how we live and how we go about our, our life. And so the idea is if I can become infatuated with who he is and let him control me and, and let him dictate where I go and what I do and how I think and how I process, then man, I'm gonna be a whole lot nicer and, and sweeter. Uh, I'll be filled with the spirit and be walking and I'll be on mission with, with God. I don't know if any of you uh, here today are, are Narnia fans. I feel like Narnia got caught up in the movies. You're the book guy or you're, you've seen all the movies, but there's this scene in, um, in the second Narnia book, Prince Caspian, and little Lucy, the, the youngest of the siblings in the, in the second book, she's like frantically searching for Aslan. Remember this? She's looking for him. She thinks she sees him, but he, he's aloof and he gets away. And, and eventually Lucy finds Aslan and she approaches Aslan. Aslan comes up to her and, and the way C.S. Lewis describes it in the book, uh, he blows this like gentle breath on Lucy and he, and he licks her nose with, with, his, with his tongue, which is kind of strange. And, and then Lucy and Aslan have this sort of dialogue and Aslan greets her and he says, welcome my child. Aslan says, Lucy, you're bigger, you've grown. That is because Aslan responds, you're, you're older, my, my little one. And, and she says, is that not because you actually are? And he says, I'm not. And then Aslan says this, he says, every year you grow, you're going to find me bigger. Every year you grow. And what Lewis knew, what he, his understanding of, of faith and, and hope, and as God is changing us and he is informing our understanding of who Jesus is, Jesus is going to get bigger in the process. And in, in, fi in fact, the opposite happens with us. The more we know about him and understand him, the bigger he gets and the smaller we actually become. And so it's why a study in a series on Christology, looking at who Jesus is according to the Bible, is so helpful because the idea is it's supposed to help us inform our worship and how we sing and how we live. And he's supposed to get bigger and we're supposed to get smaller and just continually reminded that, man, it's, it's not our story, it's, it's God's story. And we just get to sort of tag along. I saved this week, uh, this, this passage in John for the, for the very, very last week. And I want you to, to look with me as we look at just five verses uh, today, very, very short text, but theologically, this may be the richest of all the texts because there's so much happening sort of behind the scenes. And so let's unpack that. As John begins to write, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Now, from the very beginning of John's conversation to a group of people who lived in a very spiritual 
culture. They were being invaded by what was known as the time of these, they were called Gnostics. These were semi-religious people. They, uh, they didn't believe in the God of the Bible, but they, they had these spiritual and religious inclinations. But there was a lot of really goofy things about Gnostics, and we don't have time to, to get into them. But, but one of the reasons why John begins to speak about Jesus in the way he does is because they are living in a culture that is deeply confused about Jesus. They're living in a culture that has made assumptions about Jesus that are false and that are wrong. And so he says, in the beginning, in the very beginning, meaning to draw our attention all the way back to the book of Genesis, where we read in the beginning of scripture, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And so one of the first things that I want you to see this morning, I want you to understand is what we're just going to call the eternal nature or the eternality of the word. In other words, Jesus is not a created being. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Around the 300s, there was this group named, this guy uh, named Arius. And he developed this idea that later became known as Arianism. And the idea was simply this, and he was famous for, for making this statement, there was a time when Jesus was not. And so the church sort of were going to battle and they were seeking theological clarity. And so they, they took out their, their big leather belt and they busted Arian on the head, not literally, but, but metaphorically. And they called this council, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, where they began to specific, specifically tackle this misunderstanding about who Jesus was. Because for them, in the church's understanding of Jesus, he always has been and he always will be. That there never was a point in time which when he was brought into existence. No, my friends, he was there from the very beginning. That's why we can say Jesus was eternal. And we can speak to his eternal nature in these things or the eternality of Christ. Now, one of the things that's going on behind the scenes that we often miss because uh, some of our uh, Jehovah's Witnesses that will come across every once in a while, they'll take little nuances of words and, and they'll sort of twist them a little bit. They mean something. They, they use very similar language, but they mean something completely different. And one of the things that's going on behind the scenes from the English text is this word was. And what's important about this little word was, maybe one of the most important words in these five verses, is that John puts the word was in what's known as an imperfect tense. And the reason why that's important for you to know is because the most literal way for us to read was is we could read it like this, and the original hearers would have understood this immediately. In the beginning was continuing the word of God. In the beginning, the word already being established, he was just moving along with the Father and with the Spirit. He was never brought in. He was just continuing what it would always was. And this is why we can say Jesus was eternal. He never, he never started and he never ended. He's just always been. This is why we can sing a song called Promises that speak to the faithfulness of God and we can eat it up. Why is God faithful? Well, he never changes. And he never departs from his faithfulness in your life and my life. He can't go against his, his very nature. And so Jesus being eternal, the word Jesus here in, in verse one, he's talking about the word Jesus. 
And in this moment, we have this idea and this correlation to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're meant to read John 1.1 almost right on top of that. Because when God was creating, get this, Christ, the word, as God speaks a word, but the incarnate word is there in the midst of it. And he's sort of like the, the executor in creation. He's the agent, Jesus, who is accomplishing the will of the Father. And they're working hand in hand because there's great unity within the Godhead. And so historically, we understand that when we say the word God, we are thinking about God in terms we should default, we should be better at this, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, yet three distinct persons. And I emphasize distinct persons, yet one God, and there being unity that exists. He's always been this way. Now, I had three or four metaphors to describe the Trinity, and I just decided I don't have enough time, and uh, all of those fall short, ultimately, from, from illustrating what we mean by this relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And I don't want us to get hung up there in, in this moment, because we see here that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what Jehovah's Witnesses will do is they'll say, listen, you see how the text moves and he says, in the beginning was the word. And then when, he, when it gets to the end, when it talks about, and the word was God, he doesn't say it was the God. And in fact, he, they make a distinction between uh, the two in that moment. And then what they'll do is they'll say, listen, because there's this definite article, the, or this, this article that exists in front of thee, that this is what undermines the deity of Jesus. And so Jehovah's Witnesses will say, listen, Christ was this God-like, almost demigod, but he wasn't God. He hasn't always been there. there. There's no eternal nature and essence in that. And so what they'll do is they'll sort of begin to twist it and say, well, listen, we can sing Jesus loves me and we can sing some of the same songs, and, and, but, but we mean completely different things in the midst of that. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, an apologetic tip so the next time uh, one of them comes and knocks on your door. Write down the word theos right next to your notes or wherever you're writing, T-H-E-O-S. This is the predominant word that we use to describe God. When we say the theos, in the Greek it exists, the theos. Now in the Greek, there's actually another word that's used to describe a demigod or, or not quite God, but almost God, and it's a small little variant in the word theos. And you simply write it out, T-H-E-I, O-S. And that theos literally means not quite God, God-like in some ways, but not the full God. And so John understood that. The people at the time would have understood the distinction between those two things. One little letter separates what, what the intended meaning could be. And so the next time that Jehovah's Witness comes and tries to argue with you or, or to tell you that Christ was sort of a, a, a demigod and not quite God, you just go, listen, there's actually a, a literal word in the Greek for demigod, T-H-E-I-O-S. But in John 1, you want to know what word is used all throughout John 1, 1 through 5? Theos, no I. Meaning every single time God, through John, speaks about Jesus, he is referring to him as God. 
One little word, one little letter changes everything in the midst of that. And so we see this divinity that exists within Jesus. But I also want to sort of bring in uh, some good news and some hope in all this. He was in the beginning with God in verse 2. Look at verse 3. We saw this in Colossians 1 several weeks ago. All things were made through him and without him, not anything made that was made. And so from verse 3, we, we get this idea that Jesus, while being this divine word, we also understand him to, to be a God that has created things for him, and that includes the for him, you and me. And that God cared about us enough to enter into humanity to save us and redeem us from our sins. John 20, 31 says this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I wrote these things down so that you can know and call upon his name. He, he wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. He, he wants to pull you up out of the, out of the clay and, and out of the dirt. He wants to restore your soul and bring light and, and warmth to you and, and regenerate you as only he can do. He, he saves us. But, but notice what else in verse 4. He says, in him, in this Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. All throughout the book of John, if you were to do a, a word study, there's this theme of, of life that appears close to 36 times in the Gospel of John. And I know that because I did it on my computer and I, I typed in in the, in the Greek and, and up it came 36 different hits where, where God is talking about, John is talking about that there is life in Christ and that God is the life giver. Listen to me, friends. Some of us, um, we, we have been walking around uh, as defeated and deflated people as we have no, no life in us. And John says, listen, he's reminding us that, that Christ in him was life and the life was the, the light of men. Everything from the biological at the, at the smallest level to the grandest thing, from the spiritual to the physical, all of these things are pointing ultimately to the fact that God made us, created us, and made us, and that he has sent us with purpose to serve him. The life comes when I'm living my life in service to him. Oftentimes, I think Christians, well-meaning, we, we, we mix some things up. Listen, I'm, I'm all for good doctrine. I'm all for biblical uh, literacy. I'm all for understanding the Bible. I'm, I'm all for knowing uh, the process of salvation, how God saves. I'm all for biblical theology, Old Testament, New. I'm always looking for themes and, and grander narratives. And, and, and all of those things are good and should be pursued. But in the absence of being in, in a community of believers in faith, in the absence of taking that knowledge and committing my life to acts of service, that knowledge does not mean anything. Do you hear me? If I have all the knowledge in the world and I even have the right theology and, and I'm, I'm, I'm A plus, and I get A's on my paper, I can speak about these things with great eloquence and, and persuasion. But if I'm not living a life in service to other people, then, then what's the point of all the knowledge? Because God created you and me for purpose to live on mission. 
He doesn't tell us those things to puff us up and, and to make us feel good, though those, those are things that happen and we, we are affirmed in our relationship with him, but, but he seeks to let that life begin to permeate all the things that we do. One of my favorite heroes of the faith, if you will, is a, a guy named Augustine of, of Hippo. And Augustine grew up in the times of the early church and Augustine was a, was a university professor for a long time. He was an academic. He is arguably one of the most brilliant minds that Christianity has ever produced outside the apostle Paul. And I mean that, having read him, I absolutely mean that. But Augustine was this sort of weird, uh, even a, he was sort of a wicked uh, uh, professor that, that had no real moral compass before he got saved. And so years ago, uh, I had somebody ask me in the church if I wanted to read Confessions alongside them. And so we read sort of his book, Confessions, together, and we walked through it. And Augustine, in this Confessions book, he talks about the day that he got saved. And here's how it happened. He'd been searching. He felt like something in him was unsettled. He was smart. He was gifted academically. He was even successful professionally. And yet in the midst of all of that success, he, he kept finding himself just empty and, and void. And, and like, I'm just, I'm filling my life with all these things, but, but I don't ever seem to be satisfied. He even heard about a guy named Ambrose of, of Milan. And so he travels up to hear this preacher who Ambrose was this magnificent preacher. And he would, he would wax eloquently about the scriptures and all these things, dynamic, persuasive. And yet Augustine would listen to that. He would hear it and he'd still go away sad because he didn't know what he was looking for. So one day Augustine describes, he, he finishes listening to this preacher and he goes and sits on this bench and off in the distance, he hears this song, and it's really a children's song that's being sung, I think, in Italian at the time. And, and it was just saying that the song, that part of the song of the chorus was, turn and read, turn and read, turn and read, turn and read. And so he hears that song off in the distance, and so here's what Augustine goes and he does. He goes and grabs a Bible, and he starts reading. He starts thumbing through it. He gets to about Romans 13 is the way he describes it. In Romans 13, uh, verses 13 and 14, uh, it's this real like harsh condemnation that Paul gets. He's like, listen, you evil, immoral people that are full of debauchery and, and, and all these moral things, like, stop it, right? And, and Paul like smacks him in the face and, and Augustine reads this and all of a sudden he finds himself sort of caught up in this. And then here's what Paul says, really simple. The scripture begins to convict Augustine. He gets to the part where, where God says, this. Let us, therefore, just walk properly before the Lord. Let's just walk rightly before God. Let us put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Boom, that was it for Augustine. This simple command given in Scripture by the, the Word speaking to him, and it was as simple as this. There was no music. There was no invitation. It was just like, hey, stop it. Walk properly with, with, with decency. And here's why that's important for us this morning that I want you to know that it's amazing about the word of God. You don't need lights, carpet, windows. You don't need uh, all the special things that we got that we're grateful for them and they certainly enhance certain things. You don't need electric guitars and drums though we love those things. We want excellence in everything that we do. You don't even need a persuasive preacher because I can't do what the spirit of God alone can do when he brings convic conviction through the word of God. And Augustine was just like, okay, I'm saved. That's it. 
called upon the name of the Lord, repent and believe, that there was no uh, process, although he was a gifted man and he caught up very significantly. He wrote one of the first homiletic books to ever come into existence called De Doctrina Christiana, and it's the most boring yet profound book I've ever read in my life. I told my seminary professor that one time, I was like, this was terrible. And I don't understand half the stuff he said. And he says, don't worry, me either, but it's gold. But Augustine came into counter with the risen Savior through the word of God, and that life was given to him. But I want you to see the text goes on in verse 5, and he says this, this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I have here before me, this is called a Streamlight ProTac HLX flashlight. Listen, if you're looking for the baddest, best flashlight on the market, this is it. It's a thousand lumens, okay? Here's what it's intended to do. If, uh, if you come in my house at night, when you're not supposed to be there, I'm gonna have this in one hand and something else in the other. And the purpose of this flashlight, it, the purpose of it is, is so I shine it in your face and you will temporarily for a couple of seconds, you can't see anything. You kind of go blind because it's so bright. It's the best flashlight. I had two of them, uh, but then um, we had Duke and all of a sudden flashlights disappear in my house. He's my little five-year-old and things just walk off. I don't know where it went, but I had two of these bad boys. Well, um, one of the things that I enjoy doing with my wife is we like to walk and we, we walk. My wife's a, Haley's a quality time person. I'm really a, a service guy. Uh, we got married early on and she'd be at work. I'd, I'd be home, a seminary student. I would cook, I would clean, I would do the dishes. Laundry was done and she'd come home and we were still like learning about each other. She's like, that does nothing for me. I'm like, what are you talking about? This does nothing for me. I'm like, well, what do you want? You know, tell me what you want. And she's like, I'm, I'm a quality time person. And so one of the things that we do is we like to walk. And, and uh, I'm one of those like summer daylight savings people that I prefer that because I don't really want to walk in the dark. Well, as the time change, we walk in the dark. Well, after almost getting run off the road a couple of times uh, by teenagers that live in my neighborhood and neighbors that are apparently partially blind in an eye, uh, they don't see us. And so I thought, I'll start bringing my flashlight with me. And so when we see a car coming down the road, uh, it's the same thing every time I pull the flashlight out of my pocket and I turn it on and I'm just, as we're walking, I'll do this. Every once in a while, if they don't see me, this thing will, will shine really, really far and I'll just put it right in the guy's windshield, you know, and Haley's cringing over there on the side. Like we're about to, about to get in a fist fight out here, right? This guy's going way too fast. But I use this light when it's dark. Why? Because light reveals darkness, doesn't it? When I, when I press in to, to the light, it will reveal in all the crevices that are within my life when I let the word of God be the light of God to me. It will reveal how it is that I need to change and where I need to change. It will inform my, my, my understanding of truth. And, and maybe more importantly, it'll inform how I process my feelings and my emotions when I, when I let it shine light on and into my life. You know, the funny thing about this flashlight, though, is on the, on the end of it, it's got this little warning sign that says hot. And, and if you leave this on for, for a little while, this bulb gets extremely hot. And I've got some uh, scars on my hands and my, my arms to, to prove it. It, it, gets, it gets hot. And light has a way of, of not just revealing things and, and shedding light into dark places, but it has a way of bringing warmth to us. Not cold and, and, and a sense of callousness towards towards the world. 
Friend, you don't have to look very far on, on social media. You don't have to read too many blogs. You don't have to watch the news to know that one of the things that is missing from culture, one of the things that's even missing from the church's whole is this sense of, of warmth that comes when you are with somebody who's been walking with Jesus, been walking in the Word, with the Word, in the Word, and you're with them, and there's this sense of warmth that sort of comes over you. They have been with Jesus. Rather, what we see now in this contrast, I think maybe perhaps one of our greatest forms of evangelism in the years to come as culture continues to pull away from the church and, and that middle begins to sort of evaporate and you either are or you are not. Cultural Christianity, it is disappearing. And I say good. Why? Because the darker it gets in my city, the darker it gets in my country, the darker it gets in the world, I just get to throw my light in the darkness. I get to shed the, the truth of, of, of God's word and, and, and the word with, with the written word and, and it becomes exposed. When, when he says this light shines in the darkness in, that, in verse four, he puts it in this present tense and, and the way it would literally read is the light is continually shining in the darkness. So get this, I'm gonna offend, I offended some in the first service and I plan on offending some of you right now. If that verse is true, verse four, that the light is continually shining, then hear this truth this morning. The kingdom of God the gospel of Jesus Christ is not dependent upon your faithfulness, neither is it dependent upon your unfaithfulness. That the kingdom of God, regardless of you walking in obedience or faithfulness or not, whether uh, the Democrats are in power or the Republicans are in power, whether the libertarians emerge or the new parties come, whether our city is, is lost uh, to things that are away from the gospel, whether my campus is, is dark and people have turned away, that the kingdom of God is not at stake and does not depend upon my faithfulness and your faithfulness, but it also doesn't depend on my unfaithfulness either. Why? Because the light, according to this text, is going to continually shine. God's gonna continually do what only God can do because friend, it is only God that can save and grow his kingdom. I jump on board and I wanna be on the ship because I wanna be walking in obedience with him and I wanna do what God has called me to do because I know the joy and the blessings that come, not just theologically, but how I feel whenever I can be a part of walking in obedience with God. There is great blessing in that moment. And so I do it not because it's dependent upon me, that's crazy. Think about all the unfaithful Christians you've seen within your lifetime as if God would, would put his kingdom at stake in the midst of that, knowing who we are, even in our very worst moments. And yet, even in our most righteous deeds, even in our, our very best moments, God says, apart from Christ, those things are like filthy rags. And so the story of the gospel is, is this. It's not true that, that you're inviting God into your life and into your story, but the, 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 really the truth of the gospel is this. It is God uprooting and almost destroying your story to bring you along to be in his story. 
Like the gospel is that I get to be a part of what God is doing for his kingdom, not my own. And the reason why that's so liberating to me is because so often my kingdom is teeny weeny. It's not big enough. And I don't even, truthfully, I don't even want to be in your story either. Even though your story is better than mine. I don't want to be in that story. I want to be right dead in the center, in the midst of where God is showing his light and God is moving and he's bringing warmth through his people and he's expanding his kingdom. He says this light, it shines. And he says the darkness never overcomes it. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but hear it again. The darkness will never overcome the light. There may appear to be temporary setbacks at time, but in the end, we know that God wins. Because he's writing and it's his story and we're a part of that and all things were made through him and for him. Christ was in the beginning with God. Now, how do we, how do we end this? Well, I want to say this to you. I've been thinking a lot about how to sort of put the, the footnote on the end of, of this series. And, and here's, here's what I think I wanna, wanna do and we'll say to you. If we're like Lucy and, and Lewis's uh, scene that he paints, the more we know Christ and, and the older we get and growing in faith, the bigger he's gonna get and the smaller that we get. But what, 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 do I, what do I then do with that? If he's getting bigger and I'm getting smaller, practically, how does this stuff sort of flesh itself out as I learn about who Christ is? And, and just a couple of ways that I wanna ask us to experience this truth. When we, when we rightly understand that Christ is all, then we're gonna have the mindset that we're gonna be willing to do whatever it takes to fulfill the mission. If Christ is, is just a piece, if, he, if he's just sort of like this little Lego toy that we put in our pocket and we pull out when it's convenient and we, we sing songs for him and worship him and do that, but then we put him back in. If Christ is just a part, then we're only gonna do the bare minimum of, of what's asked. If Christ is all in our life, in our church and in our community groups, in our small groups, uh, in our city, we're gonna assume personal responsibility rather than assume someone else is going to do it. That's one of the biggest hindrances in, in church growth is that we assume someone else will do the community. We assume someone else will do the evangelism. We assume someone else is gonna do the outreach and make the phone call or send the text message. Don't assume someone else will do it. When Christ is all, we are going to expect in our lives personal sacrifice. That we're willing to, to sweat and, and to bleed for the sake and the cause of Christ. But, but if Christ is just a small part and a portion, I'm putting him back in the closet, so to speak, and, and sort of hiding him, that I'm going to pursue comfort over into the neglect of sacrifice. People who, who get that Christ is all, when they look into a church and a city, man, they, 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 uh, they see problems, yet they seek solutions to the problems. They don't see the problems and then just complain about it the whole time. I've been in those churches. 
It's people that go, man, Christ is everything. We have this issue. Let's just go solve it. I, I don't have to wait on a, on a pastor or, or somebody to develop a program. Like, I'm going to see the need. I'm going to make sure that it's in line with the vision and how I go about doing it. It's good to inform sometimes. That's great to know. Uh, but I'm just going to go get after it. I'm not going to wait on, on a class uh, or, or a program because here's what God has done during COVID. He has destroyed all of our programs. He just said, stop. Quit. Doesn't mean it wasn't good and, and doesn't mean that we won't do some things similar to that, but, but stop ceasing in, in those ways and, and go, go be innovative as you seek to bring the gospel out. People that understand Christ is all, man, these are, these are people that fear more holding back from God rather than fear the commitment of what it's gonna cost me. They, they have this mindset that if I don't give God everything, that maybe I'll, I'll, he'll, he'll rob me of, of a blessing or, or maybe I'll have discipline in my life because of it. I don't know, but, but I fear not giving God everything because I so want to be used for his kingdom and be a part of his plan and be on mission with him because I've experienced it. And I believe that God is taking churches and he's sort of, we're in this like culling and this winnowing phase. Not just at Travis, but other, other pastor friends of mine, are same, same thing. It's true that some are, are never gonna come back that were active years, a year ago. They just won't. The great thing about, about our church is that we have been blessed over this whole time where God just keeps, he's like, great, come back when you're ready. We'll wait on you. We'll be as patient as we can. But in the meantime, people are still rolling through the doors and ministry is still happening. We still get to experience what we experienced this morning. It was excellent. It was wonderful. And the joy of the Lord is here. We just keep plugging along. Because the mission doesn't stop. The light never stops penetrating the darkness. It never ends. That's the God that we sing about this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in Christ we have forgiveness of sins, that you've redeemed us and saved us from it. We're grateful that you call us into relationship with you. You ask us to be in, in your larger story. And so I pray, God, now you'd help us just deal with your spirit working in our hearts, that you would, you would change us, make us look like your son. Father, I pray for a spirit of conviction over us, not, not condemnation, but, but conviction and, and change that's eternal and, and from you. And I pray that we would rejoice that you are a God of, of light and warmth, that you reveal our, our imperfections, but in Christ, we, we don't have to be ashamed of them. So I pray you'd help us understand that today. I pray, Father, you'd help us respond to, to that truth, that we'd walk in humility and walk in faithfulness as we worship you in this time of response. So, Father, inhabit our praises, we ask in Christ's name. And God's people said,
guys out of here. I've got two uh, that I want to introduce you, uh, introduce to you today for church membership. Uh, the first one is Caleb Chan, who's right behind me. Caleb, come on down, my friend. Uh, he's one of our Southwestern uh, Seminary students. He's in the seminary in grad school, University of Florida graduate, I believe. He's a Gator, uh, grew up in Southern California. So we have lots of Southern California people that have, have made it to our church. Uh, incredibly gifted musician, uh, does several things just really, really well. One of the things that I, that I love so much about him is his, his kindness. He's very earnest uh, and just wants to be excellent in what he does in leading and leading in worship. And so he wants to unite with us in membership and uh, we want him to be a member here. Amen? Amen. You just voted, so I just tricked you into it, so you're all good. Uh, then Abigail uh, Robinson, come on down. There, there she is, got her mask on, and come on up here with me. Uh, one of our, our seminary students at the college at Southwestern, and uh, freshman this year, right? First year? Yep. And uh, so she wants to unite with us. Sweet and kind. Her sister's way meaner. She's way nicer than her sister, uh, if you know her sister. And so we're, we're glad, so glad that God would call you to be here, uh, and uh, want you to know both of these. And and uh, if you agree with her coming, let it be known by saying amen. 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 Her sister is sweet too, most of the time. All right. Uh, well, listen, we, we are so grateful that God keeps growing, keeps adding, keeps bringing, and we're going to continue to get after it. Uh, one shameless plug, and I'll turn it over to Getty uh, to dismiss us next Tuesday, right? 16th, excuse me. Uh, we're going to have a night of worship. Uh, it's going to be in the great room. I believe we fully committed over there to that room. Uh, and so we're going to be over there that evening where we just get to experience more of this. And uh, I'll just pastorally throw my weight around. I request promises to be sung that night. Can we do that? We make it happen. Okay. Um, and, uh, but we're going to just enjoy the presence of the Lord. We're going to pray and just, just have a really a time of, of just in the Lord and, and to be together. So, uh, Matt Getty, why don't you uh, turn it over to you, whatever you got, and then we'll go. So, God, thanks, guys. Part of being sent, we need you in a small group because you need a small group, and a small group needs you. And it is a foundation here in the life of Travis where you get to be sent out of. So you get refueled, okay? You're talking about the gospel and being encouraged. And in that small group, you also get encouraged to be sent into this amazingly, incredibly awesome, way better than Dallas City that we live in. Okay? <laughs> uh, that was a test to make sure who could hear me. Uh, so excited. I'm going to pray this out, and then you are going to be. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, and your love in our lives. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the fact that it's your story, and I can't hinder it. Thank you for the fact that you're sovereign in a way that says you're so holy that you just allow us to be a part of it. And we say thank you for that. We rejoice in that. So God, would you send us out with a conviction of making disciples that make disciples of intentionally getting next to people that are far from you and loving them with your gospel. Would you strengthen us, empower us to do that this very week? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.